Welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 5 Ashley's Story Vanderwater Courier, December 14th Carradine, Patrick Jonathan, born September 21st, 1934, passed over to meet his lord, surrounded by loving family, predeceased by his wife Margaret, nay Lynch, sadly missed by sons Geoffrey and Jonathan, and sister Pauline, Aunt Polly, of Couch Creek. No cigar for me this time. Happy trails, Pat. You were close, but you're not it. I guess it's back to my organ console to wait another two weeks. Sometimes it feels like checking lottery numbers. Even though logic tells you there are millions of combinations, you just believe yours have to show up sooner or later. It's a familiar feeling. I sometimes wonder if anyone in their minuscule newspaper office is curious about the single subscription copy they've been mailing across the province every two weeks for the last 25 years to someone who doesn't live anywhere near Vanderwater. Anyway, I'm sure the courier's days are numbered, or at least the paper version of it. Everything will be online soon, or it won't be anywhere at all. I make a habit of reading through every death in each issue even though I'm only looking for one in particular. It's the least I can do, to note their passing every two weeks. Davenport, Mary C., peacefully at the Ambience Retirement Residence in Locust Creek, in her 93rd year, after a long, fulfilling life. Well, you can't ask for much more than a fulfilling life, and going peacefully as the topper, can you, Mary? Serving on the church worship committee, knitting scarves for the homeless, family archivist, bookad to a dozen nieces and nephews, godmother to at least one. Of course, there are other ways to do this, but this is mine. Aubrey's parents have to die sometime, and it's unlikely that both of them did before I started looking in the obits. I'm a passive, patient person. I prefer to wait and see how something turns out. Leslie, Jeanette, nay Lawton, born August 21st, 1945. After a courageous battle, Jeannie finally left us on November 1st, survived by her loving husband of 52 years, Harold Leslie, and daughter Diane Mary, predeceased by her brother, James Edward Lawton. You fought the good fight, Jeannie, whatever it was that laid you low, and they don't say what, so maybe it was one of those things that are unmentionable in polite company, whispered into raised teacups in church parlors. I'm sure your battle was courageous. Do we get a few lines from Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep? Yes, there it is, in bold type at the end of the notice. You, dear Mrs. Leslie, are the thousand winds that blow. I still dream of the last person who made me happy. I'm not stalking him. I don't want him back after thirty years to rekindle some post-adolescent romance and lust. I just want to speak to him once. I just want to see his father's name in the deaths. One day I will read that Cecil Caswell has died, and I'll go to his funeral in Vanderwater, 
and stand in front of his son Aubrey. I'll let Aubrey know that he has been thought of often. Tell him that he's the template I have unsuccessfully placed over every man I've ever met. Tell him why I never responded to his letters. Take it from there. Stackpole, George Stanfield, suddenly as the result of a tragic accident on his farm. A celebration of George's life will take place. How many of our own local funerals have I played since I came here to St. Ninian's as a novice organist so many years ago? Enough to fill several cemeteries, I imagine. And no doubt there are more on deck, judging by the gray heads I see floating like storm clouds above the congregation when I look out from my organ. Just like the doctor who has seen it all and can diagnose a patient as soon as he walks into the examination room, I can pick the hymns for someone's funeral as soon as their subdued relatives poke their heads in my office. The Lord's my shepherd and all things bright and beautiful for the non-regulars, and occasionally amazing grace, which I also accept. Love divine, all loves excelling, or I feel the winds of God today for the more confident. God be in my head, or the day thou gavest, for the true Church of England stalwarts. Dark enough if they want a mass. For those who want something highbrow, I used to get the bass solo from Bach's cantata, Ich habe genug, I have enough. But I've had to stop that since our bass, Rolf, died a while back. And he was too down-to-earth a guy to have had that solo at his own service. One of the more remarkable phenomena I've noticed lately in funerals at St. Ninian's is what I call the morning has broken for lunch bunch. This is a routine that only works well when the funeral is for someone whose survivors are in from out of town. The bereaved family are surprised to see how many friends have come to mourn the passing of their dear Aunt Margaret. Often they've been afraid they will be the only ones at the service. The sizable turnout knows the liturgy, sings lustily, and listens attentively to whatever visiting grandnephew is giving the eulogy, nodding their heads agreeably at the highlights of Aunt Mags's life, and shaking them sadly in sympathy with her passing. In fact, these funeral guests may or may not have actually known Aunt Mags. It doesn't matter. They've come for the sandwiches. As soon as the last words of the committal are uttered, they stampede next door to the church rec hall, where the ACW has arranged hundreds of triangular sandwiches, each one with the crusts carefully removed and discarded. They grab a table or two, and like the jungle-scouring army ants of South America, they set about denuding the room of food, largely ignoring the family that has made their way over more slowly after stopping to chat with the clergy. If the bewildered grandnephew is a bit confused as he writes a larger check than he expected to the ACW for the sandwiches, now is not the time to make a fuss. People are generally given the benefit of the doubt at a funeral, and the lunch bunch knows this. All the dodge requires is some coordination and intelligence. The group needs to know which funerals are good candidates for crashing. It wouldn't work as well with someone whose family is local. And which ones are featuring a reception in the rec hall, as some head straight to the golf club or the Thornside Brew Pub for their memorial gathering. In the end, everyone is as satisfied as possible. The relatives get a decent crowd at the service, and the lunch bunch gets a free meal and a chance to catch up on gossip. The Anglican liturgy does indeed direct our comings in and our goings out, providing a constant but colorful framework for music, worship, and life. The church year is precise and predictable, and this suits me. 
I have long since stopped thinking of myself as anything but a precise, predictable man. I like the cadence and certitude of a calendar. Time waits for no one, nor would I ever want it to. Although I could do most of my work in my sleep, I still cherish every day I am part of this church. I'm happiest inside its embrace, which is familiar and comforting. The smell of waxed wooden pews and old hymn books, the quiet of the carpeted floor, offset by the percussive protests from the steam heating system, as if to remind us that it is still there, still in service. The sunlight streaming through the windows, reassembling itself into a pale amber creaminess, after being shattered into colors by the stained glass, a sort of prism in reverse. The way that Evensong caps the day with the most beautiful words in the entire canon, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Magnify, doth, hath, words like soft cloth. I've been here through five rectors, and have gotten along well with all of them, most likely because I offer no challenges or confrontations. People who work in the church can sometimes be depressing souls, either bullying their way through a congregation like petty dictators, or else masking their discouragement and their moribund careers with false heartiness and bonhomie, like cheerleaders who know their team is bound to lose. Fortunately, the St. Ninian's clergy I've worked with have been good, honest people with honest faith. I go along with whatever the prevailing mood is, never looking for friction. I even changed my name to make life easier on my colleagues. My family name was spelled B-O-U-G-H and pronounced like rough or tough. For the first part of my life, I constantly had to tell people how to say it. Not bow, as you would do on a stage. Not a bow you would wrap around a present. Not boff, as some of my choir members are doing to each other currently. Not boo, as people say at Halloween or to the local hockey team, the Thornside Rumballs, which seems never to win. So when I came to Thornside, I decided to preempt any ambiguousness and simply changed it to Buff. B-U-F-F. Problem solved. There was a slight speed bump around the turn of the millennium when Father Angus McNeil decided to add me to the sign outside the church. The words, A Buff Organist, looked a bit odd at first, but eventually everyone got used to it, as people do. At least now I have company in the community's smirk-worthy name roster. People in the congregation are still getting used to addressing our rector out loud as Canon Bannon. Through the years, the incumbent's responses to my music program have been entertaining and varied. There have been the music lovers and the tone deaf, the smilers and the scowlers. One evangelical type used to thank us every Sunday for our ministry of music. The accuracy or attractiveness of the performance seemed subordinate to the once-was-lost-now-am-found testifying we did when we performed. Another would introduce our number each Sunday morning in one sepulchral asthmatic wheeze, which was equal parts dread, commandment, and warning. The choir will now sing the anthem. He would then sit heavily down and sink his head into his chasuble until it was all over. Aside from a new pipe organ twelve years ago, which everyone still calls the new organ, but which is starting to show its age, there have been few physical or procedural changes at St. Ninian's, and this suits nearly everyone. People come to an Anglican church because of the continuity of the liturgy, 
which has hardly changed in half a millennium. We do sacred ritual and mysticism here, snarled Silas Micklethwaite, our superannuated and recently retired archdeacon. If they want socially relevant mud wrestling, let them go to the Uniteds. The choir likes the cycle of the year and the music I choose. They'd be upset if I disrupted it. So, lots of Gibbons and Charles Wood throughout ordinary time, the gentle, now the green blade riseth for Easter, to combat the bombastic pounding of Jesus Christ is risen today, John Rutter's All Things Bright and Beautiful for Thanksgiving, called to remembrance by Ferrant in early November, and then almost immediately, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for Advent. Lots of Willen's close, honey-like harmonies for Christmas itself, including Hodier Christus Natus Est. I would love to have known Willen. His music is ethereal without being inaccessible, and he seemed like a man at complete ease with his world. I've always loved his description of himself. English by birth, Canadian by adoption, Irish by extraction, Scotch by absorption. His was definitely a life well lived. He died in 1968, during Lent. Ever since I realized that the concert stage was not in my future, it never occurred to me to want to be anything but a church musician. I'm a passable keyboardist with reasonable pedal skills. I have my party pieces for the postludes, indelibly imprinted when I was a student, and adapted for stiffer, less cooperative fingers as I age. I can still play the Vidor Toccata, although over the years many of the notes have literally fallen through the cracks, or are straddling the cracks, more likely. No one seems to have noticed. And I have that rare kind of ear that can listen to an amateur choir and find some music in the noises they make. There's a sweetness to the dedication of my choir members that makes me feel reassured. Beethoven is supposed to have believed that music is the mediator between the spiritual and the sensual life. I believe those scratchy, foggy, tinny voices in my choir are striving to close the gap, stretching and contorting themselves in search of something higher than whatever resources they personally brought into the chancel that morning. Whether you listen to their anthem, consult your phone, or stuff your ears with wadded-up pieces of the service folder, you must understand why they are doing what they do, and you must love them for it. The singing of a church choir is not always music, but it is human communication, pure and simple. It's an affirmation of the ability of united human voices to distribute a common message that links the earth with another plane. It's spiritual devotion made manifest into a joyful noise. It is the only true sensual experience I have. As a teenager, I had almost no meaningful physical encounters with females outside of the summer I spent with a sweetly pliant girlfriend named Jessica when I was 16. I would describe what the two of us got up to as a kind of exploratory fumbling, since I was either too sensible or too frightened to do anything more. As someone once said, the boy scouts and the girl guides, so I followed her lead. That was enough for both of us. If I was on anyone else's radar, I never heard about it. As far as I knew, I was viewed as friendly, amusing, and utterly harmless. All three of those things the opposite of what I suspected girls looked for. This was just as well, for around that time I realized that my future was not going to be with females anyway. Much as I liked them socially, I confirmed I wasn't attracted to them physically. I don't know about anyone else, but the realization didn't come as a shock, and was not accompanied by an identity crisis that I can remember. 
I was who I was, and that person was not much of a sexual being one way or the other. I had a vague interest in some of the other boys, but acting on this was less thinkable back then, and it wasn't a strong enough pull to cause frustration. My obligatory long hours in the church choir, on the piano bench, or at the organ console, distracted me from most of the longings I might have had. And so I passed through adolescence into young adulthood, more or less intact. University eventually provided the sexual experience and education I needed, very little of it worth the effort. One summer, when I was in my early twenties, I attended a church music conference in Ottawa and stayed in the residence at Carleton University. At one of the nightly parties we musicians held in our rooms, I was drawn by sheer chance into conversation with a bright-faced farm boy about my age, with a dairy-fresh name, Aubrey Caswell. He was not one of us, not a musician, but was in town for some agricultural gathering and staying in the residence too. I have no memory of preliminary introductions or flirtations, and only a slight one of how the room eventually retreated, leaving the two of us in a bubble of focused conversation. The evening was ending. People were either passing out or pairing up. Eventually, Aubrey got up to go. But when he'd almost reached the door, he turned and looked back to where I was sprawled on an old couch. I got up and followed him. We spent the next hours in his room, entwined as if it were the last night in a decidedly non-Old Testament corner of Eden. The physical intensity of the experience was startling for both of us. The night was close and hot, with low thundering clouds that shuddered blue when lit from within by sheets of lightning. The residence room had no air conditioning, but instead of discomfort, the humidity created a kind of fluid intimacy that only lovers can revel in. Sometime before dawn, we stood in the dark together at the open window, letting the wind cool our skin, and watched the trembling majesty of the passing storm. It was a scene worthy of a Whitman poem. As the sky lightened, Aubrey at last fell asleep, and I eased myself from his arms, took a final look at the sweat drying on his skin, and went back to my own room. When I woke up hours later, he and his group were gone. We began writing to each other, via snail mail, of course, email being only for geeky technical types in those days, exchanging banalities from our lives. He knew nothing about church music, I knew nothing about dairy farming, and we lived many highways apart. The next steps were a question mark. But the bond was there as sure as anything in creation, instantly and inextricably joined. Several months afterward, I was driving alone from Ottawa to Montreal, and on an impulse I took the slower road that ran beside the Ottawa River to Vanderwater, the town where I knew Aubrey lived. After dialing a few wrong numbers from the town's one phone booth, I managed to find him, and he invited me up to the family dairy farm for dinner. We spent the afternoon walking through maze-like cornfields, saying little, as if to speak out loud of the night we had spent together, to compare our feelings would diminish it somehow. The contrast of the farmhouse family dinner to our time in the residence room was vivid. It was difficult to relate the experience we'd had on that sweat-soaked summer night to the sight of Aubrey, apple-cheeked and filial, passing a basket of gingham cloth-wrapped cornbread to the assembled parents, brothers, uncles, and cousins around the dinner table. The evening was expansive and relaxed. The family seemed genuinely interested in my work and my studies of music. 
It was after I had thanked Aubrey's parents for their hospitality and was standing alone by my car, waiting to say goodbye to him, that his father, Cease, approached me. He was a large, square man who placed himself solidly in front of me. "'We gave you dinner and our company, because that's what we do here,' he said. "'But you don't belong in his life. I don't really understand what's wrong with him, but having you around isn't going to fix it. You're the opposite of what he needs to be normal.' I need to find out why this sickness has grabbed a hold of him and find a way to cure him. You leave now and don't come back. You ever come near Aubrey again, you ever even contact him, I will find you, and I will fucking flatten you. Now, get in that car of yours right now and get out. That's all. He spoke in a voice that was matter-of-fact, almost collegial, but I heard a focus in his voice and words that frightened and silenced me. He was twice everything that I was in size and confidence. I drove down the driveway into the twilight, watching in the rearview mirror as he stared after me. By midnight, I was hundreds of kilometers gone. It wasn't hard to stay away. My home was many hours from the farm, if I could ever find it again. And I wasn't anxious to test Cease's threat. I know what it means to be a physical coward. Not corresponding was harder. I was sure someone in the Caswell house would be watching the mail for anything suspicious, and Cease said he would find me. That first year, Aubrey wrote many times. Ignoring his letters inflicted a kind of pain that I had never encountered and have never been able to assuage. I fantasized about alternative endings to the story, of not slinking away wordlessly when Cease gave me his ultimatum, but of retorting wittily and winning him over with my charm of writing to Aubrey under another name and telling him what happened, so the two of us could meet again somewhere, away from his family, of trying to put back together what was now broken. I've done none of that. Over the years, when life happened, as it does, my mind has often returned to the heat-infused room where Aubrey and I spent the night. Sometimes I can still hear the thunder coming through the window, feel the closeness of the air on my skin. One day I decided I would find him one more time, but I would wait until I knew his father was gone. And so I began to read the obits in his hometown newspaper on the remote chance that I might see a pathway. I realized social media might offer another way to find him, but I have no way of knowing what kind of scrutiny he could still be under, so I've never searched. Year after year I plan the words I will use to tell him how that singular night has stayed with me for all this time, how I can still feel the liquid connection between us, can still feel the wind coming in the window and flowing over our skin. I'll let him know how he became a refuge for me throughout a series of love affairs, each one more humiliating than the last, until I finally gave up. Of course, I expect nothing from him in return. I may have been only an isolated incident in his life. He may even have forgotten me. I just feel that if a person once had such an effect on someone else... They should know about it. An unclosed circle is never appealing. Vanderwater Courier, December 28th. Caswell, Cecil Lewis. Born in Vanderwater on May 23, 1939, and passed over to join his wife Lucy, nay Pickles, in eternal life on December 15th. So there it is, after all these years. You're gone, Cease died surrounded by loving children Patrick, Robert, Catherine, and their families, predeceased by son Aubrey Travis Caswell. 
It doesn't say when. Predeceased. When did he die? What season? And what of? It obviously happened when he was still a young man, before I started reading through the obits and the courier, or else I would have seen it. And I didn't see it. I didn't know. All these years, and I didn't know. How did this get past me? Did he have a happy life? A fulfilling life? Or was it a courageous battle? Was it some kind of accident or horrible disease? Did it have anything to do with Cecil Caswell's disgust with him and his promises to cure him? Did his sexuality make him a target in his tiny rural town? I'll never know. So it's over. After carrying this fantasy inside for so long, after having it reverberate in my head ceaselessly, like a cipher in an organ pipe, after having written and rewritten the words and music, how do I retune my mind? What stop do I push to turn it all off? There's no point now in showing up at Cease's funeral. No one will know who the slight, graying mourner standing off to the side is. But I swear I will do this. Some day I'll find the place where Aubrey is buried. In defiance of the poem, I will stand by his grave and weep. I will pray Aubrey died knowing he was once loved by someone. Then I'll return to my home, my church. Meanwhile, there's work to do. Christmas is past, but Lent will soon be heavy upon us, followed by the bustle of Easter, and the annual Midsummer Evensong combined service with St. Bride's is just six months away. It's an event I try to prepare the choir for, and they try too, but I know they'll never be as good as Warren Athol's ensemble in Workforth. I sometimes find myself wishing that some divine power would intervene and distract the congregation from the annual humiliation of having to hear us perform side by side with what is arguably the best church choir in Lindisfarne County. We'll pale by comparison as always, but music is what we do, and we'll do it for as long as we can. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. <laughs>